0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Have you ever seen a movie or read a novel where the end of the story is such a dramatic twist that suddenly the entire story seems different? My favorite one of these is M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense, Um, everyone's favorite Christian movie. Um, And if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I'm about to completely spoil this twist ending for you, but it came out in 1999 So you've had 24 years (laughs) to go see this, and I have zero guilt on my conscience. Um, It's a little creepy. It's not exactly a family movie, so I don't recommend it to everybody. Uh, But it is a story that you can never forget if you see it. And the movie is about a child psychologist named Dr. Crow, played by Bruce Willis, um, who's seeing this young patient named Cole. And Cole claims that he can see dead people who don't realize they're dead. And of course, he's troubled by this and afraid, and and Dr. Crow tries to help him. At first, he assumes, you know, this kid's having hallucinations, I need to just make this stop. But eventually, he comes to believe that these visions are real. And so then he shifts, and he starts helping this boy instead use his gift, this sixth sense that he has, to instead help these troubled spirits find peace and depart the world. And that would be a kind of interesting story if that was all that was there, but that's not the end, right? Those of you who have seen it, you know, the last scene of the movie, you find out Doctor Crow is dead, and he's one of the spirits that Cole has been helping this entire time, and now he has peace. Um, it's pretty mind blowing, I gotta say. And so, but once you see that you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to go all the way back to the beginning. And you immediately watch the movie a second time, and you start picking up, and you see all these details, and you're like, it suddenly makes sense now. He was dead. That's why his wife wasn't talking to him in this scene, etc., etc. And you start thinking even, well, how did I even miss it in the first place? Now that I know, I can see this completely differently. So why do I bring up this kind of creepy thriller movie? Um, to start off today's sermon. Well, in today's gospel lesson from Luke, we meet two disciples who experience an even bigger twist to the story that they think they're living. Except for them, the twist is not that the main character is dead, but that he's alive. But like in the sixth sense, this twist doesn't just take their story off in a new direction. It actually gives their entire story their entire life, new meaning. And my hope for us this morning is that we look as we look at this together, that we'll see that the resurrection of Jesus doesn't just change their story, but it changes your story and my story as well. So feel free to turn with me. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. There's some Bibles sort of scattered behind the seats there. Um, feel free to look at it with me. Uh, but as you're turning, just to give you some context, uh, this scene from Luke happens on the Sunday afternoon, just a couple of days after Jesus had been publicly crucified outside of Jerusalem. And his disciples are distraught. They're not sure what to do. But earlier that morning, two of his, or a few of his female disciples, including Mary Magdalene and Joanna, um, had gone to the tomb to anoint his body, which they assume is still dead because that's what happens when people die. They stay that way. But when they got there, the tomb was empty. And they see two angels who tell them that Jesus is not dead, but alive. And so they go back and they tell all the other disciples, mostly the male disciples, who meanwhile have been terrified hiding in a room um, for a fear that they would also be arrested and killed like Jesus. And all these men hear what these women have to tell them, and they say, nah, that's ridiculous. Idle tale don't think so. It's not a great look uh, for the male disciples. Um, But so after this happens, we find out that there's, you know, there's disagreement amongst the group. And even this group of disciples, we learn in verse 13, they're starting to break up. The fellowship is broken. And our story follows two of the ones who have decided to leave. So look with me, starting at verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now we don't learn much about who these disciples were, except that we know one of them was a man named Cleopas. um, And scholars think probably the other one was his wife named Mary, um, who we actually meet in the Gospel of John. She was there at the cross as Jesus was being crucified. And so this was probably a married couple who had given everything to follow Jesus But now they're leaving. They think it's over and they're going home. They're in the camp of those who thought that the witness of the women who came back from the tomb was ridiculous. And they're headed out of town to go back home. But lo and behold, verse 15, right? We read that while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, I actually think it's pretty cool that, the very first appearance in Luke of the resurrected Jesus is not you know, in glory on a mountaintop amongst to, to show the whole world his glory, but he actually just appears to two kind of random disciples who get almost no screen time anywhere else in the Bible on a random road, going to a random town that people don't even know exactly where it was because there's no remains left of it. This could have been you and could have been me. These are just normal people. And we don't know exactly why they couldn't recognize Jesus at first, um, but this does happen in several of the other appearances of the resurrected Jesus, too. We learned about Mary when she went to the tomb, a different Mary, um, and how she couldn't recognize him at first a couple of weeks ago. But from their perspective, Jesus is just a guy. He walks up to them on the road and asks them, verse 17, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been happening these past few days? And Jesus said to them, what things? So this is obviously a sad moment. I mean, these disciples are traumatized. Their friend and the one they put their trust in has been betrayed, arrested, tortured, and murdered in front of them. And they're probably not happy about having to fill in this stranger about all that they've just been through. But at the same time, this is also genuinely a moment, there is humor in the Bible, this is a moment of genuinely funny, dramatic irony, um, that they're unknowingly asking Jesus if he might be the only person who doesn't know what's just happened to Jesus, and we also learn that Jesus has an incredible poker face because somehow he's able to just very innocently say, I have no idea what things tell me. And so they tell him their version of the story they think they're living, starting in verse 19. Well, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, they say, a man who is a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be crucified, condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Besides this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And this morning, some women in our company amazed us. They went to the tomb but didn't find his body. And they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it, as the women had said, there was no body there, but they didn't see Jesus. Let me paraphrase. Jesus got our hopes up that things in our life and things in the world could actually get better, that he would actually free Israel from oppression under Rome, give us the life that we were made for. But he's dead. So... We know that was a lie. Some of our companions tried to convince us he was alive again, but let's be realistic. That doesn't happen. The story's over. We had hoped, but that's the past tense. See, this couple took the risk of hope, only to wind up devastated, disillusioned, and alone. And I know that many of us here this morning can relate to how they felt. Have you ever put your trust fully and completely in someone or something only to get burnt and betrayed and hurt? Right? I know I have. And there are a few things, right, that are more painful for us than the destruction of hope. Because not only do you feel the pain of the disappointment itself, and you feel the absence of what it is that you were hoping for, but your actual ability to keep hoping in more things in the present and the future, that gets damaged too, right? Every time we're let down by someone or something, we grow calluses, and we start to construct walls around our hearts to protect ourselves from ever having to feel that pain again. You know, instead of taking the risk of hope again, we start to just tell very simple but negative stories about ourselves and others. Like, I should have known. I'm just a failure. Everybody leaves. Nothing's going to change. This is just how things are. Some of you may have even experienced this in the church or in your walk with God. You've been hurt or disappointed one too many times. And so you've stopped hoping for or expecting much at all from God or from his people. I've felt the pull of that narrative in my life more times than I'd like to count. And if that's you this morning, I am so thankful that you took the risk of showing up one more time. It's not an easy thing to do. Know that God sees you. And I pray that he will start to do with you this morning what he did with this couple on the road to Emmaus. Because after they share their story with Jesus, he helps them begin to re narrate it from beginning to end. And he helps them to see that Jesus' death was not the death of hope, but it was the death of death itself. And he does this by helping them to see their story as part of the bigger story that Scripture tells. See, the Bible is not just this list of rules or timeless propositions, it's a story that spans from the creation of the world to its glorious recreation at the end of time in Christ. It's the story about God and everything that's not God, which is to say, it's the story about everything, the story that all of our stories fit inside. And Jesus helps these disciples on the road understand this story by pulling them into this impromptu Bible study that starts in verse 25. Jesus said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken! Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus walks Mary and Cleopas through the Bible from beginning to end, showing how that it's a story um, that from the very beginning pointed to a Messiah who instead of coming and violently conquering his enemies, like many hoped or expected, instead would bear the brokenness of all of our stories in his death and then rise to new life so that we can know our story will not end in the tomb either. And you may think, well, what a shame. This is probably the best Bible study that ever happened and we'll never know what Jesus talked about or what he said. words are lost to time. What a tragedy. But actually, we do have a pretty good idea of what Jesus talked about with the disciples that day. Because Luke, who wrote this gospel, wrote a sequel where he traces the story of the disciples and the apostles as they go out, and they tell the story of Jesus' resurrection to the world. And there are a lot of sermons in the book of Acts, and almost every one of them is looking at the story of the Old Testament and it's unpacking it and showing how it points to Jesus. We get secondhand what Jesus taught the disciples that day. If you haven't read the book of Acts, I encourage you, look at it. It's an amazing, an amazing story. And we don't know how long this conversation went on, but finally in verse 28, it says that they drew near to the village to which they were going. And Jesus acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, no, stay with us. For it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. Roads were pretty dangerous at night in those days. There were bandits and things like that. And so he went in to stay with them. And they sat down to have dinner. They sat down to have dinner. Don't move past that too quickly. The resurrected Jesus sat down to have dinner. He ate food. In fact, if you keep reading in this story, just a few hours later, Jesus has another meal. With his other disciples, he eats fish this time. Apparently, being crucified and rising from the dead makes you pretty hungry. Um, but the point that Luke is making and wanting to call our attention to is that he wasn't just a feeling in their hearts, he wasn't a ghost or a hallucination, but Jesus had a body. Jesus' biological, physical, food-powered body walked out of the tomb, was walking on the road and sitting at table with them. And so Jesus sits down to eat with Cleopas and Mary. And verse 30 continues. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Once invited in, Jesus is no longer their guest, but he takes his place as the true host. And he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives the bread to them. These are the same four deliberate actions that Jesus performed before giving bread to the 5,000. And the same four things Jesus did with the bread before giving it to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, when he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's the pattern of Jesus' entire life, taking on flesh, blessed and anointed by the Holy Spirit, broken for us, in his self-sacrifice, given away for the life of the world. And as he does these things, at last, we read in verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. See, a long time ago, long before the time of Jesus, long before all these events that the disciples were talking about on the road from Jerusalem There was another couple that shared a meal that led to their eyes being opened. Adam and Eve ate the fruit that represented their determination to write their story apart from God. And their eyes were opened to alienation, shame, and death. But now another couple has shared a meal that led to their eyes being opened, but this time to the one who came to reverse the curse to take away our shame, and to conquer death. This bread opened their eyes to the presence of Christ's body given for them, the fruit of a different tree, the tree of the cross. Now they know that Jesus is alive, and now they know that their story and all of humanity's story is being rewritten. And so they begin to work backwards, kind of like you have to do in the sixth sense. Okay, okay, I need to go re-understand this. And they start retelling their story a little bit at a time, beginning with just earlier that day. In verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? How do we miss it? Now that I see it, how could I have missed it before? And so now the dangers of the night, the fatigue of the journey that led them to insist Jesus come and stay with them falls away and seems insignificant in comparison with this new reality that they have encountered. And so immediately they get up. In verse 33, they rose that same hour and returned the whole seven mile journey to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, the other disciples, and those that were with them gathered together. And they were saying the Lord had appeared to them too, to Simon. And they, Mary and Cleopas, told them what had happened on the road and how Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. The broken fellowship is reunited. Their hope is being resurrected and a new story is being told. So what does this mean for us today? Well, friends, I think this passage from the Gospel of Luke does two things for us that all of us need. First, it shows us a pattern of how we can see and encounter the risen Christ, even in the midst of our disappointment and disillusionment and struggle. And second, it challenges us to see our story differently in light of his resurrection. So first, it shows us how to see and encounter the risen Christ. You know, this morning, we followed the journey, right, of these two disciples who began disillusioned and hopeless, unable to recognize Jesus' presence right in front of them. And it's ended with their hearts burning and them rushing to tell others about the reality of Christ's resurrection. And I think in this story, we're actually given a pattern of how we can make that journey too how our eyes can be opened to Christ's presence with us. It's the pattern of word and sacrament and mission. Not by coincidence, this is the same pattern that we follow in our worship together every Sunday morning. See, first the disciples are shown Jesus through the opening of scripture. You know, as I said earlier, the Bible at its core is a story, but the story is actually not self-interpreting. There's lots of ways to interpret the Bible And they're not all true or valid readings of Scripture. We actually need to be shown how to read God's Word, how to read the story the way it was intended to be. We need a guide and an interpretive key. we actually see this happen later in Acts, one of these examples where the disciples are unpacking the Old Testament for others. There's an official from Ethiopia who's traveling and reading a scroll from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. And the apostle Philip comes up to him and says, do you understand what it is that you're reading? And this official from Ethiopia says, how can I without someone to guide me? And so Philip shows him how what he's reading is actually pointing to the suffering of Jesus on his behalf to welcome him into the family of God. He needed a guide. And that's exactly what Jesus does here in Luke 24 with Mary and Cleopas, where he guides them, opens up through the, to the Bible and shows them how to read it as the story that is centered around him and his death and resurrection. you know I think in American Protestant Christianity in particular, there can often be this mentality that all I need is me and my Bible. I don't need anybody else, I can figure it out myself. But the Bible itself shows us that we need guidance and help on how to understand it properly. Guidance that we receive in Christian community that's built on the teaching of the apostles. That's why we read a lot of scripture here every Sunday from the Old and New Testament to get the whole sweep of the story. That's why preaching and catechesis and formation is important to us so that we can learn together how to read this story centered around Jesus. But scripture alone wasn't enough to open these disciples' eyes. See, we don't want to just hear about Jesus. We need to meet with him. And so Jesus was finally made known to them in the breaking of the bread, they say. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper here every Sunday. See, we don't believe that this meal is just a symbol. We believe that it's a sacrament, a physical act that communicates a spiritual reality to us. We believe that Christ really is present with us as we eat the bread and drink the wine that we literally are dining with the resurrected Christ and drinking the fruits of new creation together. When we take communion today, think about this. Christ is with us. We get to do this together every week. But finally, after the disciples are opened in the breaking of the bread, there's more. They don't just stay where they are. They immediately get up and go to tell others, to bear witness to what they had seen and heard. And likewise, our service every week ends with a prayer that the Father would send us out to do the work that he's given us to do, to love and serve him as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. We too are called to go and to share the reality of Christ with others, and we meet him as we do so. All of these things, word, sacrament, mission, together help us to know Christ better and to recognize his presence in our lives. This is the model of encountering Christ that we find in Luke 24. But the second thing this passage does for us today is that it challenges us to see our story differently in light of Christ's resurrection. See, part of being human is that we don't see our lives as just an objective sequence of actions and events. We don't view our lives that way. We interpret our lives, and we make sense of our lives through story. We tell stories that make sense of who we are. And the story that we tell about ourselves and about others shapes everything that we think and do and feel. So today's passage in Luke invites us to examine the ways that we are telling our story and to bring them all into the light of Christ. In the story, um, if it's true, if Jesus is alive, we have to tell our story differently. If Christ is risen, then the story that you're worthless cannot be true. You have been bought with a price that your creator thought you were worth redeeming. If Christ is risen, then the story that I can never change, people never change, cannot be true. If the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then you are being made new and even strongholds in your life can be broken. If Christ is risen, then the story that your life is defined by the ways that others have sinned against you cannot be true. Your identity is in Christ, who calls you beloved, who can heal all wounds, and who gives us the strength to overcome evil with good and to walk in forgiveness. And I could go on, But I encourage you, take some time this week to think about the stories that you tell about yourself and about others. Pay attention to the way that you narrate things that happen throughout the week. What stories are you telling? And ask yourself the question, how do I need to tell this story differently if my Redeemer lives? See, friends, if Christ is risen we can take the risk of hope. It might be terrifying. It is certainly vulnerable. But the only thing more tragic than having hope betrayed is to give up hope entirely. Fellow Anglican, Reverend Dr. Esau Macaulay recently wrote a column about Easter for the New York Times. And in it, he talks about how hope is a demanding emotion. It's a demanding emotion, especially for those whose hope has been betrayed too many times. He writes this, the indestructibility of hope might be the central and most radical claim of Easter. That on the third day after Jesus was killed, he returned to his disciples physically, and that made all the difference. Easter, then, is not a metaphor for new beginnings. It is about encountering the person who, despite every disappointment that we experience with ourselves and with the world, gives us a reason to carry on. That's what Easter is about. Friends, Jesus is alive, and we have a reason to carry on he's resurrecting our stories. May he do that for us this morning and as we move on to the week.